Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 103 The Top Role Playing Game Modules of All Time, Part 1. This week, we're getting into the first of our episodes discussing the best role playing game modules of all time. Now, as I've said in the past, I know some of you don't call them modules. Instead, you may use the term published adventures. Either term works for me, so however you refer to them, I've made a list and I've checked it twice. And just like that other fat guy, I'm bringing it to you as a gift. The big difference between myself and Santa, though, is that you're going to get your gifts over multiple episodes, since we'll do our show about the modules you guys think are the best down the line. Which reminds me, if you haven't gotten your selections in yet for that episode, you've still got plenty of time. I'm still planning on holding that particular episode off until late June or early July, so hit up the email or the socials and let your voice be heard. And before I actually get into the list this week, I wanted to lay out the parameters I used to compile it. I scoured the internet looking for lists from game writers, and I supplemented it with various lists compiled by gamers online over the years. Needless to say, there were dozens of modules involved in that search, but after many hours of reading and research, I managed to narrow the list down to 33. Why 33? I had to draw a line somewhere, otherwise I'd be doing nothing but best of episodes for the next six months. Believe me, this was an extensive list I was working from. So why did these 33 make the show while others didn't? The simple answer would be to say that these were the top 33 I had once I'd tallied everything up. Those who know me, though, know that my math skills aren't necessarily my strong suit, so I should probably give you the long answer. When there were ties between multiple entries, I chose to highlight games from systems we either haven't covered yet on this show, or games that we have covered but don't seem to get nearly as much love as they probably should. After all, one of my goals with this podcast was to get you to play games other than the ones you're the most comfortable with. Don't get too worried, though. Chances are good that your favorite system has at least one entry on our list, And chances are also good that it might be one you've submitted to me for the listener poll. Don't worry about it if it is, since I'll make sure to list it again for that show. One more note I've got before we start is that I'm doing these in alphabetical order rather than counting them down from 33 to 1. I could have done it that way, but I don't see this as being a list like that. Rather, I see this as an opportunity to talk about great adventures that are out there, and like I said, encourage you to head out and pick them up. I'm also going to give as much information as I can on each of these, so just be aware that some of our entries on this list are going to be more extensive as others, and that's mostly due to the amount of information I was able to dig up online. That also explains why I put a part one on the episode title for this week. I could do all of them in one show, but it would result in an episode running about an hour or so long. And while I'm sure most of you would not have an issue with that, I prefer to keep the episodes in the 30 minute or so range. Besides, it gives me the opportunity to get two episodes out of one batch of research. Don't worry though, because we will have part two for you next week. I also need to give a lot of credit to RPG.net and Dicebreaker, as I pulled a lot of the information about these books from their sites, and that's due to the number of online articles they've done about them over the years. So a big thank you to both of those sites, 
and I'd recommend you check them out if you're looking for more information about these or any of the other games you're interested in. So with the formalities out of the way, let's crank up the tour bus and get started on our list. We begin our list with Eyes of the Stone Thief, which was written for 13th Age. The basic concept of the game is that the dungeon isn't just the setting for the scenario. It just happens to be the primary antagonist. One thing to understand about 13th Age overall is that dungeons in the game are alive. They travel underground, then pop up, eat a town, and convert everything they eat into death trap filled levels for the PCs to adventure through. Now, I do need to mention that the majority of those who wrote about this supplement noted that it's an adventure that not only encourages the DM to move things around, but basically expects them to do that. And it tends to spend a lot of time drawing attention to some of the set pieces, like pillars and stone gargoyles. Also, if you're looking for a dungeon that's laid out in some sort of sensible manner, this is not going to be the supplement for you. However, if you're looking for something more than the standard dungeon crawl, it'll be perfect for that. In fact, that's one of the main reasons it was recommended by so many people. The fact that the DM can move pieces of the dungeon, or entire levels of the dungeon, around at their whim makes for something that will really challenge the group. Plus, the opportunity to hide nasty monsters inside of the structure pieces of the game, like those pillars I alluded to a couple moments ago, will keep the group on their toes the entire time. The supplement provides guidance for the DM to integrate it into their own campaign, as well as suggestions for how to maneuver pieces around to challenge the group. It's suggested that your 13th age characters be levels 4 to 8 when playing it, but most writers agreed that if worked properly, it would work for characters as high as 10th level. The next four books on our list are All Adventures for Call of Cthulhu which should say a lot about how much that game is loved. After all, it was number one on the 50 best role-playing games of all time poll we did a couple months back. Beyond the Mountains of Madness is up first. It's a 5th edition adventure, and it's been noted in more than one place that it has not been updated to 7th edition. However, after having been out of print for many years, it did get itself a new printing in 2021. The layout was changed a bit, but otherwise it was unchanged from its original 1999 release. For those not in the know, Beyond the Mountains of Madness is a direct sequel to the short story At the Mountains of Madness. That story saw the group from Miskatonic University discover proof about ancient alien life. This adventure takes up a new campaign bent on finishing what the previous campaign started and finding the truth about what happened to that first group. I'd go out on a limb here and bet they all went insane and died, but maybe I've played just a wee bit too much Cthulhu over the years. The book spends a lot of its pages providing a ton of useful information about Antarctica, top among those being rules for expeditions, plus details on 1920s era equipment, since most of us wouldn't necessarily be aware of what the stuff is or what it does. Now, if you pick up a copy expecting one full-length campaign, you will be disappointed. What it is, is a very large adventure broken up into 19 different chapters. Then again, considering the life expectancy of characters in Call of Cthulhu, I suppose you could call that a full-length campaign. Anyway, according to several writers, if you attempt the entire book, expect to take upwards of 30 game sessions to get through everything in it, and that's with the actual adventures only taking up about half the space in the book. I kept reading words like unique, unprecedented, and jaw-gaping, also immersive and engrossing when I was looking through the reviews. 
and Rick Mainz, who was the president of Chaosium when the re-release happened, noted that it was reprinted specifically because fans of the system wanted it, and they wanted a hard copy for themselves, and they didn't want to pay the high price collectors wanted for it. Okay, but how does it play? Glad you asked. To an individual... Everyone I read said that the game runs smoothly and seamlessly. In fact, multiple writers noted that it's so well written and arranged that several of the chapters seem to just fly by. And yes, it has all of the horror you would expect from a Call of Cthulhu product, as well as the pacing you'd expect from the genre as a whole. The only negative I saw, and it's a minor one, is that it's unchanged from the original, which means everything is statted out for 5th edition. That being said, a couple of writers noted that updating everything for 7th edition isn't really that hard to do, but it just takes a bit of time. It was also noted that the GM would need to make sure they've thoroughly read the material before running it, and make sure they have copious notes prepped in order to deal with questions from the players as they roll through the adventure. And frankly, if those are the only negatives about the supplement, I'd say it's a must-have for Call of Cthulhu players out there. As I mentioned, it's available in hardcover as we speak, though you might need to check out the Chaosium website to get one, unless your local game shop is just that extensive in their selection. For the record, that website is chaosium.com. That's C-H-A-O-S-I-U-M dot com. Next up is another Cthulhu classic, Horror on the Orient Express. Somebody said something in one of the reviews that I found funny enough to repeat here. Plenty of campaigns struggle with making sure that the players will willingly go along with the adventure. Some will make it a sandbox, expecting the GM to make up the rest. Others will simply disguise their nature and move along with modular design. This adventure says, fuck that, and puts the game on a literal railroad. It is glorious. Another writer noted that, Chaosium do not believe that their best-known mega-campaigns should run out of print, and damn it, they are right. I'm thinking this campaign is rather loved, don't you? Chaosium has but a single line to describe the adventure. Man dies three times in one night. Much like Beyond the Mountains of Madness, Horror on the Orient Express is another 19-chapter book. The basic premise is that the group becomes aware, due to newspaper headlines in the Times of London, that three men, identical in their descriptions, were found dead in the same room at the Chelsea Arms Hotel, and they were all killed by being stabbed through the heart. Add to that the fact that the home of one of their valued friends burns to the ground and injures them, the group gets involved in the investigation, and they're tasked with heading to Constantinople on the Orient Express. Okay, so let's start with the positives the reviewers noted, then we'll get on to their downsides concerning the game. Horror on the Orient Express is another of those Chaosium specials, which is the slow burner. It doesn't launch itself immediately into the group having to deal with a batch of cultists bent on ending the world. Instead, it focuses on an item that can give many extreme powers to the wielder. It also makes itself very personal to the player, and those touches led to Chaosium noting that the fatality rate for the game is 70%, and that's death and insanity combined. The adventures were noted for being linear in nature, as well as very balanced, and that's despite the fact that the chapters are quite varied. I mean, the group travels from London to Paris to Constantinople, and hopefully back to London before it's all said and done. Again, I read more than one article that noted this difference in settings made for an exceptionally more interesting adventure, which can very often not be the case. It's also been described as one of the most psychologically heavy adventures ever released for Call of Cthulhu, 
And when you think about all the stuff this game can do to you, that's a pretty big statement. Okay, so with the positives come the negatives. One reviewer noted that the suggestion for how to include the adventures in this product within your overall campaign are pretty weak. And several others just noted straight up that as a GM, you'd be better off just asking your players if they'd want to take a break from the main story and break off into some side stuff. Another complaint was that many of the adventures require the GM to make alterations to the narrative from what's written. But since most of us do that anyway, I don't really see that as being that big of a deal. There were a few more, but they were what I'd call exceptionally nitpicky, so I'm not including them here. Horror on the Orient Express was reprinted for 7th edition, so if you're interested in playing, check out the Chaosium website to get your own copy. Call of Cthulhu gets another entry on our list, and this one is Masks of Nylarthotep. And for the record, you have no idea how many times I've had to record and re-record that particular section of the show trying to say Nylarthotep correctly. <sighs> The first thing that I noticed when I was researching was that most of the writers needed as many as three years of weekly playing to complete the seven chapters in the release. I should note that seven chapters are what's in the most recent few releases since the original only had five. That makes this adventure different from the previous two we've covered for sure, but there's a whole lot more to this game than just the number of chapters. The overall story arc has the PCs traveling all over the world, digging up secrets about and then fighting a global network of cults that serve the god Nylarthotep. And with a game that runs this long, one would think this basic concept would wear thin after a time. However, writers took specific note of the fact that while a new cult activity in each chapter, the way they're presented and possibly resolved, are varied enough to keep the adventure feeling fresh and keep the players focused on what's going on. It's also been noted more than once that since you've got two layers of adventure going on, with the overall arc and the chapter-specific arcs, players don't have to wait for a payoff since they get one at the end of each chapter, then a big one at the end of the campaign. While I didn't find very many complaints about the release, there were two that stood out to me. Since the adventure was adjusted for 7th edition and was released in 2018, but had originally been written almost four decades earlier, there are several parts of the game that feel dated, especially as it pertains to the difference between the cults in the US and the UK, as opposed to Kenya, Egypt, China, and Australia. Also, it was noted that out of the 101 significant NBCs in the game, only 27 are women, so the lack of gender diversity was a turnoff for several writers. Beyond that, though, Masks of Nylarthotep picked up dozens of five-star reviews and has done so for the better part of the past 40 years. The 7th edition version is available now, so again, head to the Chaosium website if you're so inclined. Last up on the Call of Cthulhu releases on this list is The Things We Leave Behind. This release is what has been noted as being six modern-day scenarios, which makes it very different from the other three on this list, which were primarily set in the 1920s. Also, all six scenarios take place in the U.S. primarily, so if you're not from here, some of the locales and references might fly over your head. While I was able to dig up a ton of opinion pieces about the book, actual usable information about it was a bit thin. What I do know is that the book comes with a specific warning about the contents in that themes of disease, infection, contamination, and suicide are present. In fact, a suicide is the kickoff of the fifth scenario in the set. 
Written by the team of Brian M. Simmons, Scott Dorward, Simon Brake, Oscar Rios, and Jeff Muller, the book overall has been praised for the quality of the research and the flow of the narrative. Most players and GMs who've commented on it have also praised how easy it is to play and run the scenarios. There's one big complaint I caught, though, and that's the fact that these scenarios do not link together. So that means the GM has to either find a way to integrate them into an overarching campaign or run them as side quests or one-offs for their players. One more note here, the things we leave behind did win an any award, so we know just how much the gaming community loves and appreciates the release. Next up is an adventure for a game system we've not only not covered on this show yet, but one I'd never even heard of before I started compiling releases for the list. That game system is Chubo's Marvelous Wish Engine, and the adventure is The Glassmaker's Dragon. Jenna Katerin Moran gets the writer's credit for this, and that credit extends to acknowledgement that she created a full campaign consisting of 36 different stories to run, with a total runtime for the campaign lasting, quote, several years, end quote, when playing regularly, which we've established is about once a week. Let me quote directly a line from the book itself. Once upon a time, a perfectly ordinary child got a shard of broken glass dragon stuck inside their dreams. Once upon a time, a bit of nothingness came to life. Yeah, okay, that was two lines, but I wanted you to get a basic idea of the inspiration for the campaign. The themes of it are recognizing our own consciousness and being. Throughout the campaign, characters will experience an awakening and a transformation of sorts into a new form. The overall game itself involves the occasional return of the dead and gone, with the remnants of a great enemy of the world showing back up in mortal flesh. Needless to say, the group will find themselves facing numerous roadblocks along the way to their awakening, and it's the journey itself that seems to be the more important part of the campaign, rather than the path walked. The game didn't have a lot of online reviews, but it did show up on a dozen or so lists of the top modules campaigns of all time, so while I don't have publisher information for it, I included it in this countdown. My suggestion to you, if you're interested in playing, would be to check with your local game shop to see if it's available, and you'll need the core book for Chubo's marvelous wish-granting engine as well as the campaign book. If they can't get it for you, drivethroughrpg.com is always a good spot to check out. With our next entry on the list, we head into more familiar territory for me, especially if you caught the first season of Bad GM's campaign build-along. This entry is for the Deadlands Reloaded system, and the module is The Flood. Now, before I get into the module itself, I do need to note that the Deadlands Reloaded system is the D20 version of the game, and it was released in 2006 to take advantage of the then-new Savage Worlds system that Pinnacle Games had created. It's not my favorite system for this game, but I'm not going to argue with those who prefer it over the classic version. The idea behind the adventure is this. In 1868, the Great Quake shook the country and dumped most of the state of California into the sea. Now, we know that through our history of the setting is laid out in every version of the game ever published. The flood takes place entirely in the areas of California that still exist, which means that players will set foot in the city of Los Angeles at some point, as well as Shan Fan and other locales. The Flood was also the first part of a plot point series called the Servitor Reckoner Campaigns, which were each intended to be independent scenarios pitting the PCs against one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. 
each of whom are detailed in the court rules. By the way, the horseman in the flood is the Reverend Grimm, who leads a cult of cannibals in the city of Lost Angels. Spoiler alert, he's got his flock believing he's a man of God because he once was, and the cannibalism is something that a great many of his flock have absolutely no clue about. The book has multiple different sections, with the first being devoted to the PCs, with new equipment, edges, and other material that will help the players set their characters up to play in this section of the country. Section 2 is an exceptionally well-detailed breakdown of California itself, and while some of the material will be familiar to players who've read the core rules, a ton of new details are included. Again, with the idea of fleshing out the state as much as possible to add more realism and life to the state. The Flood campaign itself takes up a decent chunk of the book, and it's the next section. I'm not going to spoil it for those who might be interested in playing it, but needless to say, the group will be doing a lot of running around the state to figure out exactly what the hell is going on, and it culminates with the showdown with the good reverend, who's obviously not nearly as good as his flock thinks he is. After that, the book has about 20 of what are called Savage Tales. These are a combination of short encounters and mini-plots that can be sprinkled into the main campaign to add more spice to that gumbo that already has a decent amount of spice in it. Finally, the book has a section devoted to all of the new monsters presented in the campaign, as well as all of the major NPCs and a decent amount of the minor ones as well. Overall, The Flood has been highly praised by writers and players alike, with the only negative I could find being that the early part of the campaign felt a bit too railroady for them. Most of the writers, though, noted that they'd been able to work around that and alter it to better suit their group. So again, if that's the only complaint out there, I'd say it's well worth the play. Of course, you'll need the Savage World's core rules, as well as the Deadlands-specific book in order to play, so laying out that much cash might be a negative to some. All three of these books are in print and should be available at your local game shop. If they're not, you can always check out the Pinnacle Entertainment website, which is peginc.com. Next up on the list is another game I'd not heard of before I started researching for this list, Delta Green. The campaign itself is called A Night at the Opera, and it's written by Dennis Detweiler, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolze. Published by Arc Dream Publishing, it was released in October of 2018. The very first thing I noted in my research was that virtually everyone who commented on this campaign loved it. I mean, damn near everybody which immediately drew my attention since that doesn't happen very often. Now, for those who don't know what Delta Green is, like me before I did the research, it's built on many of the same premises as Call of Cthulhu, though the major difference is that all of the settings are modern-day America. I mean, there are a couple of short exceptions to this due to certain plot points that need to be resolved, but overall I'd estimate that 98% of it is based in the U.S. Now, don't let the name of the game system fool you. These aren't Apache helicopter-riding soldiers versus the followers of Cthulhu games. That being said, the players do play agents working against the various forces of evil, and the game plays with that same level of horror that Cthulhu does. A Night at the Opera is split into six different scenarios, known as Nights at the Opera by most of the agents involved. Each one pits the agents against a supernatural threat, such as horrors responsible for gruesome deaths, horrors from experience into the nature of reality, and supernatural viruses threatening to infect the country. 
Critics noted that the book is very well produced, and most gave shout-outs to the art department as well, noting that the artwork of this release worked well with the artwork in the core rulebook. It was also noted that, other than an occasional dip in inspiration and the occasional use of content from other books, the game plays exceptionally well and is virtually guaranteed to keep your group engaged for many sessions to come. Delta Green, A Night at the Opera, might be available at your local game shop, depending on the amount of space they devote to tabletop role-playing games. If it's not, check out the Arc Dream website, A-C-R-D-R-E-A-M dot com. Another game I'd not heard about before doing this show, and I'm starting to sense a pattern here, is Degenesis Rebirth. The supplement noted by Critics Online is called Jahamid's Will. Published by Six More Vodka, it's a medieval fantasy campaign in three massive parts. But before I get more into the supplement itself, I feel a bit of an obligation to note that Degenesis is a game with exceptionally mature themes as parts of their campaigns, so I wouldn't recommend you run this for your kids, unless you're cool with that for your kids. I mean, who the hell am I to tell you how to raise your kids? There are three books in Jahamid's Will, In Thy Blood, The Killing Game, and Black Atlantic. Obviously, each book takes place in a different part of the world. The Italian analog of Pergare, the French analog Franca, and Northern Franca, which is the area around the English Channel. Overall, the game plays like a medieval one, with the group working towards overcoming those who would seek to do harm in the world. I realize that sounds a bit vague, but another thing I noted in my research was that nobody seemed to want to get into specifics due to, well spoilers. What they would say is that the end of Black Atlantic would change the nature of power in the world. Again, writers pointed out the writing in the book, noting it was easy to follow and to run the group through with a minimal amount of prep work needed. As Six More Vodka is a German publisher, unless you live in Europe, I'm going to guess the books aren't going to be available at your local game shop. So check out the website sixmorevodka.com to pick up your copy. Next up, we've got two Dungeons & Dragons releases, and I have to admit, I'm a bit surprised there are only two on this list. We'll see if that changes when we do the episodes about your favorites. First up is a supplement that I believe is one of the best of all time, regardless of genre, Night Below. Written by Carl Sargent, with cover art by Jeff Easley, and interior art from Arnie Swickle and Glenn Michael Angus, Night Below was one of the final releases from TSR, and it dropped in 1995. The Abolith are the major baddies for this supplement, though the group has to do a lot of adventuring to not only figure that out, but to actually get to them to deal with them. There are three books in the box. Yes, this is a box set. More on that in a moment. The Evils of Harrenshire is the introductory part of the adventure, and the plan is to get the group from level 1 all the way to level 10. Harrenshire is presented in great detail, and it's where the adventure begins. A lot of pages are dedicated to fleshing out the town, and the NPCs are numerous. Perils of the Underdark is next, and it takes place, as you might have guessed, in the Underdark. What makes this part of the adventure different from the usual AD&D adventures at the time is that it's focused more on the roleplay, intrigue, and diplomacy. Now, combat is possible, but typically only as a last resort. As you'd expect, most of the classic monsters of the Underdark show up here, and that in and of itself might provide issues for your group. The last book is The Sunless Sea. This gets the group 
finally to the Aboleth city of Great Shaboleth. This is where the final battles take place, with the heroes hopefully defeating the evil masterminds of the whole deal. Now, as a box set, Night Below came with a whole lot of goodies, including maps, monster booklets, and DM reference cards. In review after review of Night Below, critics gave 9s and 10s on a 10-point scale. Several writers even called it the best representation of the Underdark ever. Needless to say, Night Below has been out of print for a long time, so if you're a fan of AD&D, I suggest checking out a used book or game shop or for PDF copies of the game without all of the cool extras from the box, the DMs Guild or drivethroughrpg.com. Curse of Strahd is up next, which to me is ironic considering we just covered Ravenloft like last week. If you'll remember from last week's episode, Curse of Strahd is the 5th edition adaptation of the original Ravenloft module for 1st edition AD&D. The 5th edition version was written by Jeremy Crawford, Laura Hickman, Tracy Hickman, Adam Lee, Christopher Perkins, and Richard Witters, and was released in 2016. A slightly updated version of the game was released as a boxed set of its own in 2020, and for the record, I own the boxed set, so I think an unboxing on the YouTube channel is in order. Check out our YouTube channel for that, Bad GM Productions. The overall premise of Curse of Strahd is pretty straightforward. The PCs head to Barovia, which, as we noted last week, is surrounded by a mysterious deadly fog. Strahd von Zarovich is the main antagonist, as tends to be the case with Ravenloft modules, and the group works their way through Barovia before engaging in an actual vampire hunt within the castle Ravenloft. There are opportunities for DMs to have their own riff on the module, as there are Taroka cards provided in the box set that allow for certain randomization of the game itself. Curse of Strahd is built for a group of 4-6 to six players and takes them from 1st level all the way to 10th. This is another one of those modules that has been universally praised. It's been noted as one of the best examples of what the 5th edition of D&D can do when it's running on all cylinders, and when you link back to the original modules, Ravenloft is considered to be overall one of the best modules ever written. It's available at your local game or bookshop, so stop in and check it out if you're interested. We've got two more on this week's part of the list, and the penultimate entry comes from HeroQuest. Called Sardar Kingdom of Heroes, it was written by Greg Stafford and Jeff Richard and released by Cubicle 7 Games in 2009. As you may know, HeroQuest is another game in the sword and sorcery genre of tabletop role-playing games, but since it's set in Stafford's Glorantha setting, it's got a rich background to draw from. Critic after critic said basically the same thing. Sartar, Kingdom of Heroes, is what any sword and sorcery game should strive to be, and it's what they could be if they'd stop being ashamed of their roots. Hmm. Overall, the campaign sets the group on a path to save the land from the tyranny of the Red Moon, since the Flame of Satar has been extinguished. There's a prophecy out there about someone known as the Liberator, who will be the one to start the hero wars and ultimately free Satar. As you might guess, it's expected that the group will ultimately be the ones who earn that title. Again, it's not intended to be a doctoral thesis on politics, religion, or anything else. It's written to be a fun, easy-to-play scenario, and it can be easily dropped into any campaign being played in the Glorantha setting, which could be seen as a negative since you need to be running one of those for it to work. Though I would argue you could run this as a one-shot if you were so inclined. Either way, you're going to need a copy of the HeroQuest 2nd Edition rules. The book itself is a hefty 378 pages, 
but it's divided into sections on creating your character for the campaign, for those who might not have played the game before, a section going into good detail about religion in the game world, a section providing detail about the region itself so that new players can get acquainted with the game world, and finally, the adventure itself. Reviews of the book were overwhelmingly positive, and it earned itself between 9 and 10 stars on nearly every one of them. Satar Kingdom of Heroes is out of print, so you'll either need to hit up a used game shop or check out the Noble Knights Games website since they've got ownership of the line now. That's noblenightalloneword.com. Last up on our list today is an entry for King Arthur's Pendragon, and it's going to be the shortest entry on today's list. Sorry about that. Written by Greg Stafford and published by Chaosium in 1985, the Pendragon campaign was the first product released for the then-new King Arthur's Pendragon game. It was republished in 2018 in PDF form and had previously been revised completely in 1991 and released as The Boy King, with a second release under the same title in 1997. It had also been revised again and released as The Great Pendragon Campaign in 2006. So what's the Pendragon campaign all about? Well, first things first, you need to understand the scope of King Arthur's Pendragon, and we've covered it in a previous episode in the archives, so head back and check that one out if you need a refresher. For those who want the quick and dirty, Pendragon is considered to be the ultimate swords and chivalry tabletop role-playing game, and it's set in King Arthur's Britain. The Pendragon campaign spans 80 years and covers a variety of battles, diplomatic situations, and of course, plenty of time for that chivalrous courting the game is known for. The book itself is rather hefty and contains a ton of detail about King Arthur's Britain not covered in the core book. Additionally, there's more details about the major characters in the Pendragon setting and a much expanded timeline of the world. It won the H.G. Wells Award for Best Role-Playing Supplement of 1985. There was a quote I read during my research that best sums up the opinions of the critics concerning this game, and I wish I'd found an actual source named for it. This is the best that pre-written material has ever been. If you're looking for your PDF copy, you've got options, though I'd start with the Chaosium website at chaosium.com. So with that, we've come to the end of today's episode. Next week, we'll pick up where we left off and finish our list. Before I get to the close of the show, I wanted to take a moment and note that this Sunday, May 28th, marks the two-year anniversary of role-playing history. Now, there are those who might wonder why I didn't do a special episode to market, since I did one last year for the first anniversary. My reasoning for that is we just did one for the 100th episode, and I believe that bringing this list of the best modules of all time is a much better anniversary present than another special episode. That being said, Thanks again for helping us get to another milestone, and we'll celebrate again when we hit the third anniversary next May. While you wait for next week's episode, check out our other podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. This week, we keep chugging along through the second act of our campaign, and we'll start to dig into who exactly was responsible for the ambush on our group last time out. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.com. Net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. On Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube and Tumblr, Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com. And online, the website is badgmproductions.net. Yeah. 
Next week, we wrap up the critic and writer's list of the best gaming modules of all time. Will your favorite make the list? Check us out and find out. That's next week, though. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're Role Playing History.